Hey friends, this is Susan. I wanted to jump on really quick and wish you a Merry Christmas and to let you know an update. We, um, as you know, give 10% of all of our donations to Pastor Bishani and the good work that she is doing in Uganda and planning churches and refugee camps. Recently, we were able to send a good sum of money over there to her, and what a blessing it was to her. We're going to do an update soon of all the incredible work that's being done. And because of your generosity, even more is being able to be accomplished, and we are so grateful. If you would like to give um, at the end of this, before the end of the year for year-end giving, you can go to our website to shespeakstories.com and do it there. 10% of all proceeds go to Pastor Pishani and her work there in Uganda. The rest of it, well, the rest of it goes to all of our incredible events and dreams and happenings that are coming in 2020. We're just getting started, friends, and we have some amazing plans for 2020, and we want you to be a part of it. We love you guys, and Merry Christmas. This is Katie. And sometimes Gwen. And welcome to another episode of She Speaks Stories. And today our guest has been highly recommended by one of our favorite people. Uh, Susan Blunt, and she introduced us to Joy, and we met Joy actually on email and social media several months ago, and so we have been very, 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 very eager to have her on. Um, let me tell you a little bit about her. Um, Joy is the Associate Professor and Department Chair of Communication Studies at Biola University in Orange County, California, and she is a very sought-after speaker and writer, and I will tell you Susan Blunt cannot say enough fabulous oh. things about this gal. And so I have been so eager to dive in. And then Gwen <laughs> met with on phone call with Joy. And Gwen was like, Susan, she's sensational. And so <laughs> it made me even more eager that I'm like, dude, we, I cannot wait for this. So Joy, welcome. We are so glad you're here. And she's coming from very sunny California where the rest of us are being bundled up in our sweaters. Well, I bundled up just for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Joy, I did hear that you grew up in northern North Dakota, uh, close yes. to the Canadian border. Yes. So you might be warm now, but you grew up cold. So oh, I, <laughs> I know all about cold. There is, unless you live in North Dakota, you do not know cold. Oh, I yeah, am. I was going to say, yeah. Tell us just a little bit about that. What was yeah. it like? I mean, I'm from Wisconsin, but Southern Wisconsin, sure. but I have had relatives way up there and um, it, off at Air Force Base. Is that in North Dakota? Uh, Grand Forks Air Force Base is in North Dakota. Oh, Grand Forks. Grand Forks. Yeah. yeah. Like and my then Minot, Minot. Yeah. Oh, Minot. That's what I meant. That's yeah. what I meant. Minot. Minot. Off it mm -hmm. is Oklahoma. But Minot, yes. my uh, brother-in-law, they were stationed there two different times. Is that near where you grew up? So we are two hours north. 
even more north. Okay. We are two hours north. So they say at Minot, only the best come north. So your brother and his family must have been the best of the best. Twice, twice on, they were the best. There. Yeah. Why not well, Minot? They say freezing's the reason. So. <laughs> well, tell yeah. us what it was like growing up. So, so I grew up, like I said, in Crosby, North Dakota, which is in the very northwest corner. You can actually see my North Dakota poster back there. It says "Life in the Vast Lane," and it's an empty country oh, road. Oh yeah. Um, uh, in a little community, um, about fifteen hundred people when I was growing up there. There's about a thousand people there today. We're six miles from the Canadian border, forty-five miles from Montana. So. Okay, I can you, picture it's, it. It's the end of the world, but you can't, you know, it's not at the end of the world, but you can see it from there, you know. Yeah. So, um, you literally can see Canada from my house. Um, that's not a, you know, joke that there's a power station just right north. And so the lights blink at night and you can point to people and say, that's Canada. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but it's so, it's also just very, very rural. Um, yeah. And very sparse uh, because it's we're talking about the arid plains, so not a lot of trees, not a lot of. Um, mm. In fact, growing farming is still the the number one industry there. Oil has taken over in the last few years, but farming is still the number one industry. But it's a hard, hard um, place to farm. And I, I had no idea it was arid. There. Yeah, so it's it's it. You're just kind of on this border between sort of desert mountain, Montana, Colorado type um, landscape. And then when you get into Eastern North Dakota, you get into the Red River Valley and that's really lush. So like North and South Dakota probably should have been divided East and West rather than North and South (laughs) in terms of its topography, but we, we got what we got. So, so yeah, it's a very, it's a very hard place to live and work because it's very remote. The ground is hard to, um, cultivate business yeah. and industry do not exist there. Um, in the last ten years, oil has been a big deal there. But even that, it still costs a lot to get the oil out of the ground. So um, you need oil to be about a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel for it to be profitable. So it kind of waxes and wanes in that regard. And those of us who live in California, thank you that we don't have $6 gas so mm-hmm. that the oil industry can be great in North Dakota, <laughs> you know, so it, <laughs> it's this tough sort of, um, but it's also a very idyllic place. I'm, my mother-in-law says she thinks it must be Lake Wobegon, right? It's, um, oh, Garrison oh. Keeler. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a very family community oriented place. They're mostly Scandinavian, Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish mm-hmm. um, people in that area. North Dakota in the center has a, a community of German Russians, um, Germans who escaped to Russia and then came um, to the U.S. But all around that are all Scandinavian people. Things like um, Norwegian Independence Day are days off. Um, it's <laughs> oh. Much, uh, oh yeah. I mean, the Norse Coast Fest is the largest cultural festival um, in the Northern Plains. People come from all over the world to celebrate Scandinavian history and culture. It's you know, so that's very much ingrained in who I am. Um, yeah. We didn't call ourselves Scandinavian Americans, but you you were. I mean, that was just part of people. People prayed in Swedish and Norwegian and. We ate all of the foods and 
Um, you know, so, so we're very, I mean, it's a very American, you know, very patriotic, um, place to be, but, but that heritage was important. Yeah. Understanding um, your roots and all that. So right. in that's your, right. in your church, they prayed in Swedish and Norwegian? My, yeah. In Swedish and Norwegian. And my uncle would sing, he had this hymn called thanks be to God. And he would sing it in Swedish and then he would sing it in English. And my grandfather said his greatest regret is that he didn't force his mm. children to learn the language because yeah. it's basically gone. That's fascinating. Our family. Um, I can repeat the prayer off of a sheet, but I don't yeah, do yeah. it right, you know, and stuff like that. But I will say you, um, the way you, your accent, the way you speak is very similar to Katie. Yeah. So I that, can pick it up. You see, I'm yeah. talking about it now. So I'm pulling, I'm pulling it. I spent 20 years trying to get rid of this accent, but I can pull it up in a heartbeat. So, um, but well, Joy, what did your dad do for a living? Was he a farmer? No. So, so my, my mom's family is actually from there. They were house movers. So back in the day, you would, you would build a house on a farm. And then if you needed to um, move to town for some reason, you didn't buy a new house. You picked your house up off the foundation and you moved it to town. Oh. And so that's what, what? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's actually quite efficient. So you, it, when it was time. To well, that is efficient. I just can't even, I can't even picture that in my mind. How you pick uh, up a house and move yeah. it. And that's, that's what they did. They, they picked up houses, they jack them up. They'd have to work with all the utilities and stuff. Cause we still had power lines and things like that. And they would move houses from farms into town or from other small towns into our town or, or houses out of town if you needed to. They were house That's houses fascinating. And builders. And so when my parents moved back after they finished Bible, or after my dad finished Bible school, um, that he worked with my grandfather. They ran Anderson Lumber Company. Um, and they, the lumber yard and the house moving business, my grandfather had the business for 50 years. So house, wow. moving, yeah, house moving stopped being profitable but then they they became builders. They built cabinetry and um, the little sheds that go behind your house. And, That's amazing. Yeah, but for and and I you know I think the sadness was is that nobody wanted to take the business over, but my grandfather wanted to make it fifty years, and he did. And and so he he ran that with um, his brothers over the years. He he raised seven kids. My uncle had ten kids before he passed away. My grandfather raised those kids. Um, there was another brother that had three kids. He raised those kids. I mean, mm. you know, my grandfather made sure that, and he, and he raised all of us in, in many of, many of the, the same ways. So, so they were, they were always, um, workers, laborers, every, everybody in my family. And so there was a, a restaurant on the property of my grandfather's business. And when the lady who had ran it for a million years retired, um, my parents were offered the opportunity to take it over. So my growing up years from first grade through the start of high school was working in a restaurant. And, oh, and so wow. my mom would tell stories about I'd be in my little black patent shoes. I'd get there from church and we would immediately start, I'd put on an apron and I'd start washing dishes and everybody would start to do the work that they needed to do. It was a whole family effort to, to keep that restaurant open. During hunting season, my dad would get me up at three o'clock in the morning and take me in to help serve because hunters looked very sympathetically upon a little girl who would serve them breakfast in the middle of the night. And they would leave lots of big money tips for that poor child who had to 
get up and, and serve them. So it was, it was this tension between this very Americana sort of place. And I can idealize it a lot um, yeah, yeah. now, right? I can look back on it and say, it, it's just the most, you, you know, you would get sent out in the morning and told to come in when the sun goes down and the sun mm-hmm. goes down in July at 11 o'clock at night, you know? <laughs> so it just, um, it was this very fanciful, very wholesome. There are more churches than bars, places to live. But it was a hard place to live because yeah. the nearest um, Walmart was in Canada. Um, the other one was an hour away. Right. Um, so you didn't need a passport back in those days. So it was actually easier to get to the one in Canada than it was to get to the one in the States. The mall was two hours away. Um, and people thought we were, you know, when I moved to California, people were like, that's terrible. How could you, you know, and I think <laughs> I now today... I don't go to the mall unless I absolutely have to. Like the mall right. is a terrible place to go. But <laughs> but we just thought it was the most wonderful thing, you know, that you drove two hours to get to the mall. So so I mean it was it was it was scarcity in the sense that like, you know, the other thing is is that there were blue laws, so stores closed. You didn't get your groceries Saturday night. You didn't you had to wait until Monday morning, you know, yeah. to get things yeah. because yeah. things were closed. Um Winter is for real in that part yeah. of the country. Yeah. Summer's good. You can get really hot. 100 degrees is not out of the question. But 40, 60 below is also not out of the question. Right, you right. know, And so everything in our life was marked by the weather. Could we go to the basketball game that we needed to go to? Would the weather hold out? Can you drive to get the school clothes that you need? Because would the weather hold out? I mean, I just, my whole life was marked by the cycles of the weather. Yeah. Um, and, and yet people ask me, like, we played outside for recess. We just got all bundled up in our stuff. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, we weren't hermits, you know, and stuff, but it was, so it was this tension. There was this tension between, um, not having access to the things that people in the rest of the world had access to, but also just like, we didn't want to be bothered by all of those things either. You know, it, it, it was not a, particularly welcoming community probably, Mm. you know, because everybody was related to everybody or knew everybody in some sense. And you kind of had to earn your way in to the hearts of the community. Once you did, now, once you're in, you're in, you are in, but it, but it probably took a lot for people who, and you only had 1500. Oh, go ahead, Katie. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you probably didn't have a lot of new people. No, there wasn't. Streaming in and out. You didn't no. have probably no. a lot of turnover. And those who did were, um, back in the day, we called them custom combiners. Today, we would call them migrant farm workers, right? They're the people who came in and out during the planting and growing season. Right, right. Who would bring their equipment and things like that. But they were they were people who would be in our school and in the community for a couple months, and then they would leave and go to their next thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but, but people would sometimes come and discover they loved it and they would stay too, you know. Well, because it is a uh, very peaceful Mm-hmm. It is in a way. Small town I mean, life. I, it is. I get what you're saying. There's tension. It's hard, yes. and yet you're not rushing here and there. No. And, right? No, and you can't rush here. And, and so, you know, when, when <laughs> you can't rush. No rushing. When there's forty. You know, when it's forty below and the wind is blowing, you don't rush anywhere. You yeah. don't you rush know? anywhere. Do you? So, Joy, what was your family life like? Uh, so our family life was equally tension filled. <laughs> so I had this big extended family. 
that we were the family in the church. So there were only five families that weren't blood related to me in the church I grew up in at that Mm -hmm. time. Um, Sometimes it's been a little mafia like with the family, right? If the family doesn't like the preacher, the preacher probably goes that sort of thing. Um, But our immediate home life was marked with much greater tension. My dad, um, grew up in Kansas, also um, just outside of Kansas City. His mother died young. He was a Vietnam veteran. Mm. He, had, he had been saved during the Jesus movement. And mm. back in those days, everybody who got saved in the Jesus movement went to Bible college because they didn't know what to do with this newfound faith that they had. Um, ministry probably wasn't supposed to be his thing, but mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have ways of dealing with some of that um, back in those days. And so life was really hard. He was a very angry, still is, a very angry, very um, um, hostile man. He, he never, my, my mom would say, he would never, ever hit us. But sometimes I wish that he would, mm. so that people would know what was going on. Um, he would have these fits of rage. And we know now um, he has a Parkinson's-like disorder as a result of Agent Orange poisoning. That's an official diagnosis. So probably some of the things that he was dealing with were illness-related that we had no idea about. Sorry, Mm -hmm. this stuff keeps dinging here, and I don't know how to try. Oh, we we don't hear it. Okay, oh, good. I'm so glad because I keep hearing it. (laughs) (laughs) Messing with all the things. Um, But but, so our house was one that was... um, it was like eggshells all the time. You just never knew what you were going to get. And when he would fly into a rage, um, he would take off and drive. My mom would describe him like a drunk driver, um, you know, and stuff. But I was his favorite target. Um, well, I had two oh. brothers who he basically ignored. Um, but and you were the oldest. I was, I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. I'm the only girl. Um, I talked early, so I was able to interact um, with him. And talk um, back. Yeah, and talk back. And but he would he would push me on things. So like he would say we you know, we'd be have a football game on in the background and he'd say, Who do you think should win this game? And if I said, you know, the Broncos should win this game, he'd say, Well, then I think San Francisco should win this game. And he would taunt me with those things. Um, you know, why do you think the Broncos should win? And what makes the Broncos such a good team? And you know, I mean, I would be wow. little, like an elementary student and I'm like, you know, I like their uniforms and orange is a pretty <laughs> color. And, you know, I mean, it just wasn't, but he would push and push and push and push and push until I break. And when I, when I would break, then he would stop. And my mom would say like, she's just a child. Like who cares what's mm-hmm. happening in the news? Who cares what's happening on a football field? Like it just doesn't matter. She's just a child. And, and he would justify this, that she needs to be tough. She needs to know how to operate in the world. She needs to know how to defend herself. And, you know, just, I mean, it, but, it, but it was one of those things where I just learned that if I could break, it would all be over. And, and then he'd leave me alone, you know. And yet I longed for his attention and his, yeah. his approval. Yeah, um, you know, I loved those early mornings of working in that restaurant as horrible as it, as it sounds, you know, it was, those were the, t- I got, to, it was just me and my dad, you know, and yeah. we got to have that time, but, but life became really hard. And, um, when I was 11, he took off for the first time, um, and disappeared. We didn't know where he was. 
came back shortly thereafter. Um, when I was 13, we actually left in the middle of the night on Christmas because my aunts were afraid of what he would do. Um, and so then he took off again um, and we were able to come home. Um, and that time um, he never came back. And there's lots of stories about where he was and what he was doing during that time. Um, but my mom waited. She wouldn't file for divorce. She was a good Christian woman who believed that divorce was a sin um, and that God would give her back her marriage and her family. Um, and it wasn't until I was almost 18 when she finally filed for divorce because she just needed him to contribute to the family. Sure. Um, we had been on welfare for several years. She'd had to sell the restaurant you know, all sorts of things that just, she would, she would shop, she would drive two hours to go to the grocery store so that our friends didn't know that she paid with food stamps. Um, you know, those years were marked by really hard, hard years, but they were all hidden because it's such a small town that you couldn't let this stuff spill out into the open. Um, so I know people knew that things were awful, you know, and stuff, but but I don't know, I really don't know what people thought about my dad or our family or, you know, things like that, because there was a lot of reputation management that was happening mm, by extended yeah. family, you know, and stuff. So, And that can be exhausting, having to constantly care about what other people are thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and... And that was because that was important to my grandpa. Your re, your reputation was right. your honor, and so we guarded that reputation very, very carefully. But I mean, he left. You know, it wasn't there was no mystery <laughs> surrounding. But that. you knew he was alive, Joy. Did you know uh, he we was knew alive? at some we knew at sometimes he was, but we didn't know at others. Okay, yeah, we, okay. There were, there so were he would kind of. He would Let kind of your pop mom in. Yeah, he would. No, but yeah, not really. There'd yeah. be phone calls or there would be, somebody would see him, you know, people, oh. you know, North Dakota is a small place. And so he was in North Dakota for a while. People would see him, um, you know, and he would tell people my parents were divorced. And my mom was like, we're not divorced. And nobody's ever, you know, mm-hmm. filed for divorce. He says he lived in his car for a while. You know, again, we I, I don't know what's true and what's not true um, yeah. in some of those things because we don't have a lot of record of that. Um, and truth has not always been something that he's been very good at at telling. You know, so so that's the other part of it is I don't I don't entirely know what the truth is surrounding yeah. some of these things, but but church and family and home became the refuge. You know, because that was how we that was how we survived. That's how we made it we made it through. And the hard parts were say things like graduations, right? Would he show up? Would he not show up? If he showed up, would he behave himself? You know, those sorts of things. And sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. it just getting a hold of him and, and trying to track him down and stuff like that was, was really, was really hard. And eventually, um, you know, he just disappeared for, for about seven years where there was no contact. And then he emerged with one of my brothers at one point and tracked them down, you know, so, but this wow. is, I mean, this is how we kind of continue today. I mean, he's, he lives in a VA facility in Arizona. Um, and he has my husband's phone number, but that's it. He doesn't have any of our other phone numbers and we kind of manage if I'm, emotionally well, I will have a conversation with him. If I'm not in a good place, then I say, he's got to wait, you know, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. you've put um, up healthy boundaries. Yeah, we've had to, yeah. we've just had to, my youngest brother doesn't want anything to do with him and that's fine. You mm-hmm. know, he, he was really little when mm-hmm. all of this stuff went down. And so, 
um, he's a stranger. You yeah, know? And, right. and the hardest part is that my dad doesn't understand any of that, right? Yeah. He doesn't understand that he was the grown up and we were kids and, you know, things like that. And, and so, but, you know, my mom was really good about the fact that she never said a disparaging word about him ever, mm-hmm. ever. It was your relationship with him is your relationship with him. And you can make your determinations about what things yeah. are, you know, and stuff. And so we all eventually did. We all just eventually made our, decisions, mm, you know, so but, good. but we had people in our lives, you know, we just, we had a big family. So we weren't lacking either. Yeah. In the yeah. sense of, I mean, what we lacked in physical comforts, we did not lack in um, relationships sure. and, and care. And, you know, we had an aunt and uncle who made sure that you know, when the starter jackets were the big deal, you know, with the football teams and stuff on them, my brothers had those and, and I had a leather bomber jacket so that we looked like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that we didn't look like how things really were. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what, what made you pursue a PhD? In communication and politics sources. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good question. Uh, So all of this has to do with getting out. Right. I wanted out. I wanted out of that community. I wanted out of um, the little opportunity that I saw that it provided. I did not want the life that my mom had. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to go as far away as I possibly could. Um, So she said to me, if you can find an Assemblies of God college, you can go there because at least I can trust what it is that they're teaching you. And we were so poor that I qualified for all the things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it was, um, it was great. So I found a little AG college in Southern California called Southern California College at that time. It's called Vanguard University today. And it was literally as far away as I could find. Um, I didn't know there was one in Florida or perhaps I'd have ended up in Florida because that was a little further away. But, but, um, but I ended up at, at Vanguard um, in Southern California. And I didn't want, I, I didn't know that I wanted to go into any of these things. I just wanted jobs that made money and I could take care of my family. Um, but I fell in love with the stuff that I was studying. I was encouraged to be a communication major. I, um, originally thought I'd go to law school because that people made money who went to law school. So, um, I started out at history poli sci, but it was there that the love of the academy began to be cultivated in me. Um, but there was, there was one point in the midst of all of our family drama where my mom was about to lose her house. She had an FHA Mm -hmm. loan and she reached out to everybody that she could reach out to. And out of desperation, she wrote a letter to a United States Senator and said, can you help me? And, um, he happened to get a hold of her letter. I now know how these letters work. So it was pretty amazing that he managed to get a hold of this letter and he went to the FHA with her and sat with her at the FHA and helped renegotiate her loan. No. The senator did that? The United States senator. His name was Byron Dorgan. He was the junior senator from North Dakota. Now, if that Um, doesn't give you hope in politics, I do not even know what does. That's right. That's right. I I love that. He was one of the best there was, one of the last of the um, statesmen Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we've we've had. And, And so I applied for an internship with him because I wanted oh. to know and understand who he was. The greatest day of my life was like when, when I got to tell him that story. It's like, <laughs> you were the guy. You were the one. Oh. Um, <laughs> you That's really precious. Can, I'm getting yeah. all choked up. It was, I know. It was great. And in fact, that little poster I got, that he signed that. Um, it gave it to me when I, when I left working for him um, back in the early 2000s. He signed the poster and 
and gave me that as a as a memory. It sits in every office that I have. So I yeah. love that. I I so did you move to DC? I to did eventually. For? I did eventually. So okay. I I I long story short, I got internships. I was offered an opportunity to work on his reelection campaign, but then I had to go graduate from college. And so there was kind of years of like back and forth. So I went to grad school in Virginia Beach at Regent University. Oh yeah, to study political communication. And they had a um, they had a campus in D.C. at that time. So I'd go back and forth between there and back. I was wrapping up my master's degree, and I get a phone call from the then chief of staff who says. Um, we don't have a job description and we don't know how much it pays, but the senator's got this idea for a job. Do you want to come do it? <laughs> and he thought of you and he thinks you should come do this. And I was like, I'm there. So I, love with that. No, I, I lived in the dingiest apartment right on Capitol Hill. My mom at one point was like, I'm taking you home because this is the scariest mm-hmm. thing I've ever yeah. seen in my yeah. life. Yeah. But I literally, I lived on First Street Southeast on the house side of the Capitol. Oh, wow. I, yeah, it was horrible, but it was <laughs> the most wonderful oh, yeah. place ever. And every time I get back to DC, I walk over to First Street Southeast and I look at that row house mm. and I think about all the ways that my life changed there. And, and mm. so I would walk every day to work and I would go by the Capitol and I would sit and look at the Capitol and I would think, Dear God in heaven, how on earth did a little girl from the middle of nowhere get to yeah. be here? Mm-hmm. Like, it was the hardest years of my life in terms of like trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do and how to make money and pay my student yeah. loans and all of those sorts of things. But at the same time, I was like, I look at where I live. It's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm one you of those. You grew up a lot. A lot. A, a lot. lot. And I mean, I would never let my daughter do some of the things that I did. Like, <laughs> What was anybody thinking? <laughs> um, but I stood in front of the Capitol one of those days and I prayed that very same prayer. And for the first time in my life, I heard the voice of the Lord really clearly. Mm. And he said, I've given you everything you asked me for. And it's yours. And it's a gift. And you can have it. But are you willing to walk away from all of it and do what I want mm. you to do? And mm. I walked to work that day. And um, within a couple of days, I resigned my job. I sat in the senator's office and he said the greatest mistakes I made in my life were when I chose um, my career over the things I knew I was supposed to do. Don't do that. And if you decide this is wrong, you have a job here for as long as I'm here and you can come back at any time. And so I left the United States Senate to become a church secretary because (laughs) that was the job that my now father-in-law offered me back in Virginia Beach and my sister-in-law said, if you are coming back here for my brother, you are crazy. Um, I mean, it was, nobody understood. Why do you, why would, why on earth would you leave a job like this? And I just said, I don't, this, I don't know. I don't know why, but I just know that this is what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. A grad school professor brought me to lunch, handed me an application for a PhD program and said, this is your sheaf, put it out before the Lord and see what happens. Mm. And within a year, I was in a PhD program, and now I was learning how to integrate religious communication with political communication because I learned a lot on Capitol Hill. Yeah, um, I learned a lot about what I didn't like. I learned a lot about what I did like. Um, you saw the seeds of where we are today starting yeah. to germinate mm. um, in those days. And, um, and so I wanted to know more. I wanted to do more. And so 
long story short, that's how I got here and how I got to study the things wow. that I studied. Yeah. Well, and your, your degree is really unique. I mean, a PhD in communications and politics. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's yeah, political and religious communication is my. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So then my question is, what are your thoughts about today's <laughs> political climate? Because we are in unique times as we speak. Oh, yeah, we are in very unique times. Let me tell you, the work is good right now because <laughs> um, there's a lot to analyze. Uh, um, and yet it's really, we are living in a really poor communication environment. That's, mm. that's the biggest thing. We're not communicating. Um, and we're using base levels of communication to shoot you know, lob stuff over the bow, right? It's really hostile. It's really um, mocking communicate. I mean, it is, Aristotle would be devastated, but at the same time, um, this is what George Washington was the most afraid of, you know? So as you look at, at the ways in which um, ancient writers and, and early American writers talked about um, these things, right? It's, we're living in everything they predicted, could happen, you know? So, so there's also that, like, this is not, this is not unusual, Yeah. (laughs) you know? Um, um, the good news is we do have stop gaps in our system, hopefully that protect us against these things truly going off the rails. But, but, you know, George Washington said the two things he feared most were deep division and foreign interference. And these are the things we're talking about in our world today, deep division and foreign interference. And yet at the same time, the religious communication side of me says, you know, God allows us to walk through seasons of judgment uh, when we are not living the way that we are supposed to live. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, When I look at Jeremiah's um, writings on the predictions of what's coming to Israel, I see our world and and exile is our choice. Exile is not the same as what happened in Egypt, right? The, the people in, in, in Egypt got so powerful that the Pharaoh became scared of them and they become oppressed. The, the Israelites in Jeremiah's era become so haughty and vain and so believing that they are, they've got it all figured out and they don't have to obey this God who has commanded them that he says, guess where you're going. Mm. And so we can choose, we can choose exile. And that's, I think the, the part of my work right now is to say to the church, you cannot be both prophet and King. And we got to choose. And right now we want to be King. We want to, we want to have power. We want to be in charge. We want to conquer the seven pillars of culture so that we can rule the world. There's, there's, that is not the way of Jesus. Mm. And, and we better, we better be careful because exile, if it's not already here, it's coming Mm. and, and we, we choose, we choose exile. Um, and so now that's, that's what I'm looking at. And politics doesn't scare me nearly as much as the church marrying itself to that Mm. because the the church stands outside of that. Jesus never said, become Caesar he said, give to Caesar, but he never said become Caesar. And yet this ragtag bunch of outsiders eventually toppled Rome 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so, so I think, I think we've got to, we got to get a regrip and I'm, I'm more concerned about how the church operates in this season than I am about how the government operates in this season. So what would you say, Joy, to like, I mean, just the regular Joe Schmo believer that's walking with Christ, um, what would you say needs to be their relationship with politics? So I am a firm believer that we participate. 100 people died so especially as a woman people died so that I can participate in yes this. so I'm a, a voice yes. absolutely I'm a firm believer in all of that so I think you should vote I think you should write letters I think that you should communicate and engage but what I think we have to be careful about is aligning ourselves with the idea that any political entity is going to save us first of all we yes don't need, we don't need saving we don't need to, we've been sick. We have a savior. The savior has come. <laughs> he has done the thing. You can, you can align yourself with that. So, and, and then the, the other thing is, is that the church thrives in times of attack and persecution. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so if we really want the church, I, I mean, as horrible as this sounds, right. But if we really want the church to have a place of influence, we have to be willing to invite the hardship upon us. Yeah. Yes. Because it's then that the church thrives. Look at what's happening in Iran and in, oh. and in, and, and in China and, and in places where we, mm-hmm. we don't understand what persecution actually looks like. No. Mm-hmm. And it's thriving. The church is thriving. They yeah. say the, the fastest growing church in the world is led by women in Iran. We right? saw it's, it. It's amazing. Yes, you know, and so, I mean, I'm not one who's like, hey, bring on the trouble, right? Like, right, we of need to. Not, but. But, but we need to understand one. So this is where the communication practice comes in. We got to be careful about how we talk about these things, because if we claim persecution because somebody doesn't like the chicken sandwiches we eat, <laughs> then when real persecution comes, come on, there we nobody go. Nobody is going to believe us. Yes, because we have cried wolf for so long. Yeah, that nobody will believe us. Yes. The other thing is, is if you want to play in the political pool with the political big boys, then you will be attacked, and that is not persecution on your faith. That is persecution on your political ideas, the same way you attack other people's political ideas. And and you are enemies in those regards. And enemies are to be eliminated and enemies are to be destroyed. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute (laughs) you. And so, so if you choose a political side as a religious entity, you are saying that the other political side does not have a place in your religious sphere. That's right. That's right. Well, then what do we do about that as Christians? I, I'm sorry. I'm not willing to give up on my friends who differ from me politically yeah. because Jesus died for them too. But yeah. when I want to play in the political mm. game, I have to choose and, and, and I have to compromise. I have to be willing to give something. I have to be willing to, to, to engage in battle. And, and I, I think as Christians, we need to take a step back. And we need to reclaim the gospel of Jesus that is for our enemies more than it's even for our, our um, same, the people who are saying in yeah. those spaces. You are yeah. preaching right now. This is good. <laughs> well, I, I, there is nothing I firmly believe more. And I, I have stopped being a partisan. I have stopped being, you know, because I, I want my message to be credible to other people. So I don't identify with a party for that reason. 
anymore. I have my beliefs. I have the things that I, that I stick to. My dear friend, Michael Ware, who worked in the Obama White House, feels differently about this. He thinks we should mm-hmm. align ourselves with parties so that we can be salt and light in those spaces. I'm, I'm fine with that opinion, but this is the space that I've chosen to, yeah. to be able to say, you know, listen, if I'm going to expect you to step away from, from your political adherence, I'm also going to step away from mine so that we can have some conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Oh, joy. I love that. I got to (laughs) be honest. When I saw that question, um, you know, a friend, oh, what do you think about today's political climate? I'm like, oh boy, here we go. This could be bad. (laughs) But what you shared, what wisdom, what freedom, what light, what, I, I, I don't know. I just keep in my heart like, oh, this is true. This is wise. This is good. Thank you uh, for sharing well, that. I love I, that. I believe it. I just believe it. Because yeah. I used to think that the same way that we see amongst most of our evangelical friends, right? We have to infiltrate these things. We have to mm-hmm. take them over. We have to make them. But the, but I saw how it actually works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you're inside, that's not how it actually works. It works by tearing the other side down. It works by destroying it. It works by, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it just, that's, that's just it. That's just how it works. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, the more I started to look at the way the scripture talked about how even the nation of Israel, um, acted in, right. God said like, you don't want a King friends. You don't want one because he's going to take your land. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. And, and God in his graciousness gave it to us anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And guess what happened? He took your land, he took your daughters, <laughs> he took the, daughters, he took the wow. sons for right? war. That's right. And, and, and then we, we see this up and down, right? Those who were good in the eyes of the Lord prospered. Mm-hmm. Those who weren't in the eyes of the Lord didn't prosper. And, and everything became tumultuous as a result of that. But God always gave the prophet. He always wow. gave the one to stand outside and say, hey, that's good. Right? And so I would rather be on the side of the prophet. But guess what? The prophets die. The prophets get put in jail. The prophets get put, you know, in spaces that are hard. So I'm not, there's nothing about this that's like, hey, here's the easy way to deal with yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's instead, it's like, are you willing to die? Are yeah. you willing to be ostracized from your community? Are mm-hmm. you willing to be the one to stand outside? And yeah. I just think the world is longing for that voice. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, and I tell you, um, you talking about the Iranian church, that movie that Gwen and Katie and I have watched, um, you're, you are hitting the nail on the head because it really is people are longing. Um, they are longing for people like those Iranian women in every country to rise up right. and do incredible things for the gospel. That's right. In spite of the political climate. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and I just think it's possible. Yeah. I still Absolutely. believe it. I still yeah. believe it's possible. And I love that it's possible in the fact that God's choosing women to do that. And so many. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, okay. Well, then this is going to segue beautifully <laughs> because in 2018, you wrote a book, God Forgive Us for Being a Woman Rhetoric, yeah. Theology, and the Pentecostal Tradition. What in the world inspired you to write that book? <laughs> and what does that title mean? I know. Right? Let me tell you, of course, as soon as I read God Forgive Us for Being a Woman, I, when I first saw the title of your book several months ago, I was like, 
wait, what? Because <laughs> I saw a picture of it first on Instagram somewhere. Yep. And yep. I went, so there wait a minute, this is there Joy's is. book. Yeah, that's, that's so exactly true. the one I saw. I was yeah. like, this is Joy's book. So yeah. tell us, tell us about what inspired you to write it. So this was my dissertation originally. Um, the book itself is not as academic as the dissertation was, but, um, but that's where it's, so it started as a faith journey. I had left DC. I had left um, all of the stuff that I thought I was going to do behind. Um, and I began to, to research and think about my own faith tradition and ask myself whether or not it was a place where I actually belonged. Um, and did I have a place in it? Because there was a lot of things that so there's a lot of myths and stories about this golden age of women in the Pentecostal tradition who led all of these things. And there was a woman who hung, whose, whose picture hung on the back of our wall of our church and, and nobody knew who she was, but you couldn't <laughs> take a picture down, right? This so happened, she was the woman who planted the church and she planted 26 churches in North Dakota in 25 years. And, and yet, where was her story? Why didn't we talk about her? And how come there wasn't another woman who had pastored this church since then, even though we talk about the fact that we believe that women can be pastors. So it started out on that journey at a dissertation director who said, these women are going to haunt you until you tell their stories. So, so go out and tell their stories. Um, but I wanted to figure out what we believed. And what I came back to as a communication scholar is that how we talk about things matters. How we talk about politics mm -hmm. matters. How we talk about the church matters. And how we talk about women matters. So I chronicle the history of the Pentecostal tradition from a rhetorical perspective on how we have talked about women, both officially in our official statements, in our official policies, and then how it's actually carried out. And wow. what you will find is that we're not very good at doing what we say that we are going to do when push comes to shove. And part of it was um, Pentecostals got tired of being the kids on the other side of the tracks with weird theology and weird ideas. And they wanted to be accepted into places like the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, and so we sacrificed some things that we believed as a result of that. A diminishment on the gifts of the spirit happened in terms of the way we talked about those things. The role of women started to disappear from not never from our constitution and bylaws, by the way, but from our discussions. Mm -hmm. The number of women who were credentialed and ordained drastically went down as the rise of second wave and third wave feminism came up, um, the church reacted against that instead of seeing it as an opportunity to say, wait a minute, we've been doing this right. for a long time. Right. Like, yeah. come, come to the church. This is where women have been proclaiming the gospel since the day Jesus rode from the dead. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet, you know, we, we sacrificed those things on the altar of acceptability and on the altar of, of um, um, good Christian behavior. You know? yeah. and, and listen, there's differences of opinion on the theology of these things. And I'm, I'm totally open to the, the differences of the theological discussion. But at the end of the day, my tradition has said since 1935, women can serve at all levels of the church, but they weren't. Hmm. And so why? Why weren't they? And I It's think a good question. Yeah, I think how we talk about the role of women in the church is why. I think it, it comes back to the more we talk about things, the more things are accepted. The less yeah. we talk about things and the, the way we talk about things matters in terms of how people believe things. So the reality is, is that most people sitting in the pews of an Assemblies of God church today don't know that our Constitution says that women can serve at every level of church leadership. They just don't know it. Hmm. And, and it's, they're not being taught it. 
And it creates a lot of dissonance in the minds of little girls who grow up in these churches, who go to Bible camp and go to places where they're told Mm -hmm. God can call you. God's going to do these things in your life. God's going to take you to these places and, and you should seek his call upon your life. And then they, they go and they get trained and they learn. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. We can't hire you for those things because women can't be pastors. Yep. And it's yep. this crazy dissonant thing that, that actually is, has created a lot of harm in the lives of women mm-hmm. in our churches. I mean, you're seeing, I mean, look at the way the Bruhaha and the SBC has come up over mm-hmm. vast more of all yeah. people. Like, oh, who is, I can't. There's just yeah. no more gracious human being on the face of the planet. And yeah. yet we're, we'll, we're going to be willing to like take her down to preserve some level of, of power, yeah. of power. That's, I was that's so it, appalled by all that. Oh, you know, and the way goodness. they've gone after Karen Swallow Pryor from Liberty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. and so, I mean, again, I think this is spiritual warfare. Yeah. I think the greatest lie that the enemy has been able to perpetuate on the church is that half of the body of the church is incapable of spreading the gospel of Jesus. And That's we right. believe uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. We believe it. And we'll justify it with all kinds yeah. of scripture. And he sits back and just says, I don't have to do anything because y'all are going to do it all for me. And, yeah. And, yeah. and we are hindering. We're gonna, we are going to answer to Jesus for this that's someday. Right. I just believe uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Because, yeah. and, and so that's where the title comes from. Because And how has it been received? You know, better than anybody anticipated. <laughs> Good. It, because because it, is, it is an academic book. I, I will tell you, it is not your traditional Christian um, um, publishing, you know. Sure devotional um text it's it's a it's an academic book um but so they told me you know if you sell 50 copies you should be pretty happy and you know that sort of thing and and um we sold almost 500 copies last year I love it Um, and so it's still um it's still being sold on all the things Amazon and oh good I was gonna ask where to get it because here's 501 yeah Absolutely. And read it. It sounds fascinating. I like the way you think. Um, Well, and I do, I think what you're saying about it really is going to affect the generations of our daughters um, and how we talk about women. And more importantly, it affects how women think they are loved by their savior and by their creator. That's right. Because it is not so much where can a woman serve But when you start dissecting that statement, where can a woman serve in ministry? You then are dissecting her value to her savior. And that's That's gross. And so when you tell a woman to go home, you are telling generations of little girls that Jesus wants them to go home and not be effective in the kingdom. It's not acceptable. Well, and, and here, I mean, it became a meme online, so I'm not, I'm not, yeah. not original to me, but the reality of it is, is at the foot of the cross, the men went home and the women stayed. It, preach so it. Exactly. Me, <laughs> count me amongst those who yeah. hung out at the, at the foot of the cross. I did, did not. not go, did not go running back home because they right. were scared of what was going to happen to them. I yeah. did not see that. Yeah. That my was dad. my favorite one of all of them was like. I love that. that you know. Yeah. Um, but I liked what you said when you said, why would. Why would half of his church not be allowed to be involved or something like that? My, yeah. my brother, Tom, is a pastor at um, a charismatic church in Madison, and we mm-hmm. would talk about this a lot. And 
he would say the same thing. Seriously, Katie, you think that Jesus um, would give gifts to all his people, but then half his people aren't allowed to use their gifts? Yeah, How does that right. make sense? That's right. That's right. And, and I'd be like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Well, and I think too, what you talked about is that it was written that you could serve anywhere, but it's not practiced in no, like what practiced. you were going. And I think too that... Um, I think that's the case for many situations is that they encourage, when I say they, the global church, encourages everyone to want to love Jesus with our mind, our body, our soul, and our strength. We are encouraged to do this. But then when we step forward and say, how is that going to be lived out? The practicality of it it's this nervousness about it. Like, uh, well, uh, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like, there's this nervousness. And I, as the mom of two daughters, I never for one second want them to think that their gifting is not needed or valued. That's right. Because God is on purpose gifted women with such creativity and such beautiful gifts to further the kingdom. Well, and I think it all, I mean, it goes back to even like the Iranian thing. Those women, what if they had their mouths shut because they were women and they said, oh, I can't be used like that. Where would the church be growing right now? Do you see what right. I'm saying? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and that's it. I have a 10-year-old daughter. I have a 14-year-old niece who both distinctly express very clear, direct calls on their life. And I mean, I tell you what, I might do my own work in my own sphere, but heaven help anyone who gets between my girl and the call that God in that truth upon her. Yeah, that's right. It, yeah. It's just not going to happen. And so it's different today for my generation than it was for my mother's generation than it was for my grandmother's generation. Um, but these women who went out pre-feminism, right? Like this was my, that was my other thing was like Pentecostalism came at the turn of the last century. Mm-hmm. These women were getting in boats and going to China and packing right. everything in their you know, caskets because they knew they were going to come home in those. And, and who hmm. gave them the authority to do that? Who gave them the cultural currency to do those things? Well, I'll tell you who did. The Holy Spirit did. And, and they just went. And I just think now we've got all these rights and we've got all this freedom and we've got all of this thing that we can do. And now we're being told we can't do those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just, there, there's something that doesn't jive there and it doesn't yeah. jive with the person of Jesus. I mean, when Mary sat at his feet to learn from him, she was not attending a Bible study. Mm-hmm. She was attending rabbi training because mm-hmm. people who sat at the feet of rabbis were being trained to be rabbis. Come on. And, and when Martha comes and, and, and chides her, it's not because she needs help in the kitchen. It's because Martha is afraid of what the cultural implications will be for her sister to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And Jesus mm. says to her, she's doing the right thing. And so if it's good enough for Jesus, it is good enough for me. And oh, I, you just, I love that. You know, I, I just think we have to mm. look at it differently. I, I mean, this is a whole other subject and, and we don't have time to get into it. But I think the CEO model of church leadership is also just so damaging to all of us and the idea that there's some sort of, you know, person in charge and everybody else flows out from that when the reality is, is that the person who was in charge gave himself up for the bride that he loved mm-hmm. so much. And, and we got to stop talking about who's in charge of the church. And we got to talk about who's giving their lives for the church. Mm-hmm. And because and, mm-hmm. nobody has a problem with women who serve. Everybody got a problem with women who lead. 
And the reality is, is that leadership in the church is not the same thing as leadership in other spaces, because leadership in the church is about carrying your cross mm-hmm. and, and, and being willing to die for those things. <laughs> and, and that's where we've got to, to, to walk into those spaces. And that's why women are leading this church growth movement right. in Iran, because right. they are willing, They're willing to, to die. They're, They're willing, willing to, to die. die to self. And that's I read right. something or maybe saw it in that movie that it's not done with a spirit of ugliness and against no. men and, no, oh, no, we got no. our rights. It's done in this beautiful humility and absolute love for Jesus that's right. and love for others that's right. and wanting wanting with all their heart to that's give right. others what they have found right. and well, not I'm, letting anything stand in the way of that. I'm right. like, that's it's right. simple. That's it's right. simple. It doesn't right. have to be this big political and ugly argument. Let's just love him so much. That's right. That's right. Well, because the work of the Lord is not a pie. Like there's not only eight pieces and if the eight pieces are gone, there's no more work to be done. The work of the Lord is infinite and abundant and extending and there's, and there's more. And, and when we look at it and say, well, there's only five loaves and two fish, Lord, there's only so much to be done. His response is not, oh, well, I guess you better get what you can get out of this because it's all going to be gone soon. It's like, let me tell you what I can do with five loaves and two fish. Yeah multiply your And so we got to stop looking at it as like, if the women start to lead in the church, there's not going to be a place for men. Give me a break. There's so much. (laughs) Give me a break. I like it. You know, there's just so much work to be done. Get your hands dirty. You know, the harvest is ready and the workers are few. And so, yes, bickering about who gets to till the ground and and let there are sex they might be. (laughs) I am so going back and listening to this a couple of times because there are so many phrases that I need to like write out and put places that I can see. I mean, golly, Mm -hmm. Joy, there's some rich wisdom there. And we need to have you back, Joy, because I feel like we're running out of time, but there's still <laughs> so much I would love to hear you comment on. So would you come back? As okay. a- <laughs> of course I would come good. back. Of course. I don't get to have like girlfriend conversations. I <laughs> love this. <laughs> and we do love this. We love hanging out with guests like you. I love and it. Great wisdom and think big and, mm-hmm. um, and willing to verbalize yeah. it. We love this. Well, and I think it's helpful for us to walk through theologically through the scriptures of women's relationships with Jesus, women's, the women that are in leadership, because I think when we can start getting into truly how women were treated by the very one who saved our souls, it transforms our thinking about women in leadership. That's right. That's right. Because yeah. he honored women so beautifully. So he much. honored them so, so beautifully. Right. And I think, um, I, yeah, I, I think there's so much more good discussion that right. needs to happen because right. through those discussions and through storying through the Bible about women in, in, that are leaders, it changes our thought process about I hate to use this phrase, but what we're really allowed to be doing. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that the Apostle Paul is the same way. What the Apostle Paul did for women is actually pretty glorious. Yeah, absolutely. He's not, he's not the enemy that he's been made out to be. Yes. He's, he's actually 
a, a great door opener. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's, I think that goes back to some of those deeper questions. Yeah. Our pastor um, was preaching and he was reading some phrases about Paul and how Paul initially in those phrases was acknowledging women first. Yeah. And he said, we can never tiptoe over this. The fact that he acknowledged women at the very beginning of this statement means he's elevating them That's simply right. by acknowledging That's them right. first. Right. So we can never sit here and say, uh, how lowly women should be when Paul was saying how great they are simply by acknowledging them first. That's right. That's and right. I love that. I just love yeah, that so that's much. Right. Well, and right. Paul protected women then as mm-hmm. right too. So, so then when there were danger spots where there was problem places, he was like, whoa, friends, we got to pull this back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can't put ourselves in a situation by which the gospel is hindered, but we also can't put ourselves in a situation by those who are are, are in this space. That's right. Putting them in danger. And, yeah. and so, yeah, Paul is, I love, I love brother Paul. He's <laughs> so good. <laughs> All right. So tell me, Joy, we're going to take a, a right turn really quick. That's a totally different topic, sure. but on May 3rd, your mom was diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer. Yeah. And so you've had a hard year, a very, very hard year. So tell us more about this journey with your mom. Yeah. So it has been a hard, in fact, um, I was realizing because of Facebook memories today, this is also the one year anniversary of a really crazy car accident that I was mm. in that kind of set all of the things of the last year in, in motion. If I could tell you all of the spiritual warfare, you, your minds would be blown, but, but yeah, we got a call. Um, May 3rd, my mom has been a really vibrant, um, human being her whole life, but she decided at 60 years old, she was going to go on a health journey. She had been, walking and, and things like that. Um, but she decided she was going to take up running. Um, <laughs> and so she started to run five and 10 K races at 60 years old. And good gosh. At, yeah. She was training for a 10 K, um, this spring, she did one every May in Fargo where my brother lived. She would go and run the Fargo marathon and do the, but it wasn't the marathon itself, just the 10 K. Um, and she started to have some pain in her hip and, um, she went to the doctor cause she would say, I'm not a runner. And so I've probably done something that I shouldn't have done. And um, there was nothing wrong with her hip. And so they started to investigate some more. And she had some terrible abdominal pain that resulted from that. Took her in for a CT scan. We had been at a movie that morning. She's like, I got to run over, get a CT scan. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. By five o'clock, we hadn't heard from her still. And again, when you got to drive an hour to go get your CT scan, that wasn't entirely unusual. Um, but I called her and said, what's going on? And she said, well, I need to get you and your brothers on a conference call because it's, it's bad. Um, and the CT scan revealed cancer everywhere. Um, and we didn't know what to do. Um, luckily it was May, the semester was coming to an end. Um, so I traveled with her. She chose to go to cancer treatment centers of America in Chicago. Um, whether that was the right decision or not, you, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, but I flew there to be with her for 10 days initially to start treatment. Doctors there said we could probably come to a place of being disease controlled. You'll never be cancer free, but we can get to a place. Technology is at a place. Medicine is at a place. So she started an immunotherapy protocol, um, in June, as soon as our kids were out of school, we moved our entire family back up to my hometown we thought we'd be there for a month to get her just set up in her treatment schedule and get the routine going. Um, three months in one day is what we got um, because my sweet mama 
went to Jesus um, August 4th. And we were there for nine weeks. And my husband and my kids and my brothers and their families, um, we all lived together, 10, 10 human beings and three dogs in an 1,800 square foot house together mm-hmm. while we cared day in and day out um, for, for the woman who cared every day for us. Um, and our lives just became very focused and became very intentional and, um, the things that were happening in the rest of the world just didn't matter anymore. Um, but I also found out that that community that I was so desperate to escape from, um, were the greatest, uh, gift that I have ever been given. If we cooked for ourselves 10 times in those nine weeks, that's, um, the most <laughs> that we did. There was food every day. There were coffee gift cards. There were, I literally went to the bank one day to deposit one of my mom's paychecks and somebody stopped me and said, add a hundred dollars to the deposit and just had gave the lady at the bank a hundred dollars to add to the bank account. Um, the day before my mom's 65th birthday, the community came together and raised $50,000 um, to pay for her treatment. Um, the people at the hospital she worked at gave all of their PTO. So she got her last paycheck four days after she passed away. So she never missed a paycheck. She never missed an insurance payment. She never missed any of those things. Um, and, uh, so it was the most horrible (laughs) and glorious and wonderful, um, time. Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Those nine weeks were, um, they were just really, really precious. And um, things got really hard. There was cancer in my mom's brain. Um, and so she, her personality changed pretty quickly, mm-hmm. which was really hard. Um, and they say that people can be hardest on the person they're closest to. So she took a lot of stuff out on me, um, which was also really hard. Um, but at the same time, like, I just knew that it, it, she was doing the best she could too. Um, but she would say, I'm not afraid. I am not afraid because I know, I know that I know that I know that I know that the God of the universe is waiting for me. Um, but I'm sad. I'm sad. You know, I've got a little girl and just talking about my, my little 10 year old whose wedding I need to be at. And I've got, you know, boys who are going to graduate from college and I need to be there for them, you know? And so she said, I'm, I'm sad, but I'm not afraid. Mm-hmm. And I have a video of her in the hospital telling my kids, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid because Jesus is here with us. And there's no, and I don't want you to be afraid because Jesus tells us not to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the best stories, uh, we put her in the hospital 10 days before she died because Um, she was, her body was no longer functioning the way that it needed to. And we could just couldn't take care of her at home anymore. We had been doing round the clock shifts of things. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, she had been in the hospital a couple of days and one of the nurses pulls me aside at one point. And I mean, I've known this girl since she was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper and she's a mom herself now. And, um, she stops me and she says, now, listen, you're religious and I'm Lutheran. (laughs) and I was like okay I didn't know that those two things were different but but she says um I'm just coming off the night shift and um 
something happened last night and I need you to explain it to me. Mm. I said, okay. And she said, um, I was sitting at the nurse's station and I just got the impression that that Marilyn's room was full of people. And I know you guys have been in and out and you've got lots of family and stuff like that, but um, I just knew her room was full of people. And so um, I thought, but it can't be because you would have had to come by the nurse's station in order to get to her room. And I didn't see people come by, but I couldn't shake it. So I got up and I went to her room and I walked in her room. And of course it was dark and she was in there alone sleeping. Mm. But she said, I'm telling you that room was full of people. And she said, I could feel them. I could, I could hear their breath. I, I knew that room was full of people. And I just looked at her and I said, well, that's what we call the great cloud of witnesses. Yeah. And they are assembling. And I said, oh. they're, they're coming to welcome my mom. Mm. And, and she's going to walk with them at some point. And it was another week before we lost her. Um, but my youngest brother and I were there in the room, um, together, uh, with her, um, all of us had been there at some point in time and it was, it was completely peaceful. She just was breathing one minute and she wasn't breathing the next. Um, there was no pain. There was no struggle. There was no, um, any of that. Um, there had been in a couple of days leading up to it. And if, yeah. if you've, if you've not read Henri Nouwen's, um, book in memoriam, which is about his own mother's death, it's the greatest comfort to me because I understood that struggle better after reading his book. Um, cause I did, I did fear for a while that perhaps she thought we had abandoned her. And she was so scared in those lives. There was terror that I've never seen. Mm -hmm. um, but now and says, we all have to confront death. And that was what was happening. And it's in that place that we get to make a choice. And all of the choices that we've made up to that point don't matter until we have to confront death. Um, mm. And I've said, you know, I, none of this has shaken my faith. In fact, it has really the spirit of God has been so thick around us because mm -hmm. I think a year ago today I was saying to the Lord how long and and what are we what else are we going to have to endure because we had just had this car accident it was Christmas time we had lost a ton of money last year I mean just you name it anything that had come at us could come at us but there was also one point that I kind of shook my fist at the enemy and said is this the best that you have yeah. because my God yeah. is so much greater than all of this, you know, yeah. and, and then the phone call came, right? I mean, it just was like right. one thing after another, mm -hmm. after another. And yet with the grace and the dignity that I watched my mom walk and, and she said, listen, this is where the talk stops and we now have to walk out in front of our community and in front of all of these people that we have lived with everything that we've said, we can no longer say things. We have to do things. Mm. And she walked those three months and one day with such dignity that her example to that community will last a lifetime. I, I don't know whose eternities were impacted by that, but I know that there was. Yeah. I know that there was because her life was a living testimony to the God who is faithful. That's right. And I miss her every single solitary day. Every day does. I miss her. Of course she did. But I am so grateful that we got three months in one day where yeah. the world just stopped yeah, and degrees didn't matter and promotions didn't matter and finances didn't matter. And all of those things that make us who we are 
And all that mattered was that we were surrounded together by the spirit of the living God who, who ushered my mom into his glorious presence. And she is not afraid anymore. Mm-hmm. That's she's right. not, she's not sad anymore. She's not, I'm sad, but she's not sad anymore. And she's going to be present when my daughter walks down the aisle mm-hmm. and she's going to be present when my son brings his children into this world. She will, she will be present for those things. Mm. Um, and so, wow. yeah, it's, it's been, it's been quite a journey. You've had it's quite the year, my friend. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I do, I, I, I would not have claimed that I was worthy of the enemy's attention, but I've had enough people say, Oh, sister, <laughs> He is point blank staring at you. Yeah. You know, and yet I, I, I can say with confidence, I would look right back at him and say, is this the best you have? Mm. Because greater is he. Yeah. Greater, greater is yeah. he. Yeah. Oh, joy. Well, um, listeners, if you could see us all right now, <laughs> Susan, Susan, Quinn, and I are <laughs> mascaras run. <laughs> Joy's wiping off her chin. <laughs> but again, I know we're we're mm-hmm. out of time with yeah. this episode, but we would love to have you back. Uh, and, come back, anytime. and we want to mm-hmm. sincerely thank you, not oh, only yeah. for sharing your wisdom and and the knowledge you've gained, but then also sharing your your heart yeah. and your uh, your personal walk and the pain involved there, but also the joy and truly just mm-hmm. oozing, oozing love and trust in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> all over us, all over our <laughs> listeners. And um, we, we just need you coming back anytime. Because anytime. I tell you, I think the conversation about um, women in ministry needs to happen. Because I think, um, and we need someone who has such great wisdom, both in um, a political climate, but also Mm -hmm. in the beauty of the rhetoric of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think that would be an incredible, Mm -hmm. incredible storytelling that we could do through the leaders that women that are women in the Bible. Joy, I want to ask you one last question before you go. What is the one thing that you want us to remember about your story? The God who calls is faithful. Mm, He's faithful, you know, and I didn't think I had a calling, you know, because I wasn't called. I'm I'm not called to pastor. That's the other thing that I say. I'm not called. I don't do this out of vain ambition because that is not my calling. Um, But he has been faithful. That's right. Everything that he has called me to do. And, and yeah, that's good. It's simple. I love it. That's simple. I love it. Joy, thank you. You oh, are a gift, and we will have you back very <laughs> oh, soon. You no, know, it's my yes. pleasure, honestly. And, and I'll come to Virginia. How about Yay! that? Oh, we would love that. We, we would love it more than you even know. That would be Virginia, so fun. Virginia is my favorite place on the face of the planet. Oh, so, oh, oh. I'll invite you, and oh. I'll meet you in 29 Palms, too. Yes, California. absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I know we're out of time, but you'll appreciate this. My husband will tell you that he is a Virginian first and an American second. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's good. That, I so I didn't, I didn't understand that until I met a man from Virginia. But <laughs> You speak the truth. <laughs> That's good. All, All right, right, Joy. Yeah. Well, you have a okay. fabulous afternoon. Thank We're so you, grateful you for you. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Bye, you, listeners. Bye. We love Bye. you. Bye. Bye.